0: Today, we're gonna talk about undignified or what I would also call shameless worship. Shameless worship. Just let that title soak in for a moment. Nothing hinders me more in my worship than when I think about what other people are thinking and feeling about me. I don't mind being watched when I worship because we all have to set an example for our children and others of what true, authentic worship looks like. But I can often find myself inhibited when I allow skeptical viewers, people that are condescending and looking down on me or putting me under the ever watchful eye. And you'll always have these people. The key is not what they're doing, the key is what I'm doing despite what they're doing. This is something we're never gonna get away from. There's gonna always be scoffers and skeptics. There will always be scoffers and skeptics, and there will always be people watching you. There's always gonna be somebody from your past that says, wait, weren't you that... Fill in the blank, that's right. <laughs> they're not gonna understand who you've become today. They're always gonna define you based on your past. And they're gonna use your pat, the past definition of you to define the way that you should be today. So when you are free, when you've been totally released into the more that God has for you when you've been transformed, people that don't understand that process, they're gonna still identify and define you based on who you once were. All of us should learn learn to move past what other people think of us and how we worship when it's biblical and authentic. And on the flip side, none of us should be standing in the place of being a scoffer and a skeptic when it comes to how other people worship. We worship for God, not for man. We're here for the Lord, not for other people. We don't come here in hopes that people will show up. We come here in hopes that God shows up. We have to stop worrying about the eyes of man and what other people think about us and what you look like. Now, I've been inhibited in my authentic worship in the past when I attempted to look like something that I wasn't. Or when I've tried to go along with what everyone else was doing. They were doing it, so I did it. Or I thought that it needed to look like a particular way and that it would move God's heart, but I wasn't being genuine in my own heart. I was being pretentious. There's so many reasons why worship, and there's so many biblical standards, of what true and proper worship looks like, which is what we've talked about in this entire series. The Bible defines what worship looks like, but the occasion demands what you do in the moment. You don't predetermine what your worship's gonna look like. You determine it based on the moment when you walk in here. Because some of us have said, well, I'm never gonna do something. I'm never gonna lift my hands. I'm never gonna dance. I'm never gonna lie prostrate. I'll never throw my hands out. Well, then you're telling God what you will, you're predefining what your worship looks like when the Bible has already predefined it for you. But the moment and the occasion that you're in demands what it should look like based on the Spirit's leading, not your leading. We don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Yet at the same time, we move together in unity in the atmosphere of what God's doing in all of us corporately, if we're all lying prostrate on the ground and you're the only one standing or sitting there with your arms crossed, you're not doing as the occasion of the atmosphere demands. You're being skeptical or withholding yourself. And they'll, still, there'll be people that do that. And I want you to understand, I love you and I love those people no matter what. Not everybody's going to always want to go up the mountain. So this isn't me beating the sheep and beating you up. Some people are going to observe first but you have to get the skepticism out of your heart. The only way I got past being inhibited in my worship was to lose my own self-image, the fear of man, the man-pleasing spirit, and only focusing my love and attention on the living God. I shared a story a long time ago how one of the first prophetic services I ever went to, the prophet got up and he said, Today, you're going to lose your image, just like David did. And there's not going to be any music. And he challenged us to come and worship God authentically from our heart without instruments and music and worship in front of all the people. And I was like, no way am I doing that. And then, of course, God reminded me how I could go to reggae clubs and drink nine shots of tequila and get up on tables and dance and be wild. But here I am in God's house and I couldn't get up and lose my, I could lose my image if I was intoxicated. But here I come into God's house and I'm restrained and I'm, I feel restricted and I'm worried about what other people think. And God's like, you better get up there. I was the first one to get up there and I danced wildly without music in front of all, imagine. I mean, some of you would be terrified if I called you up right now and said, come up here and dance wildly in front of the people. (laughs) Maybe next week we'll do that. (laughs) I have to focus my attention on the Lord and stop worrying about what other people think. Now, Part of that's why we dim the lights a little bit in here. Part of that is why we have an atmosphere conducive for that. And there's only so much space up front, so not everybody can be up here. Because if we start dancing or really moving, getting wild in the presence of God, we're gonna knock, bust a nose or knock an eye out, right? But I'm just saying to you, for me, I love being up here because I want to not be distracted by what anyone else is doing or saying. My, when I step into a time of worship, my eyes are solely focused on the Lord. Because the minute I start thinking about, well, what are they thinking, and who's new here today, and I can feel skeptical eyes on my back, and if I look back and I see people, like, you know, it's not hard to read the faces of people. Your face doesn't lie. And I understand this is a wild atmosphere. I get it, we got, we got flag worship, which by the way, Mariah was so incredible today. So incredible. This is an electrically charged atmosphere, and it can be a lot for new visitors, I understand that. But we're not gonna shift what we're doing in hopes to please a new visitor, right? Because the hungry and the desperate and those that are authentically seeking after the presence of God will love what God is doing in us. Look around. We're not out to please be man-pleasing people, we're God-pleasers. And so we have to take our eyes off what other people are doing. And we have to stop worrying about what other people think about us and how we worship. We also have to be in unity with others in doing what the occasion demands, no matter how it looks or appears, even if it appears foolish. It's going to look foolish. You are going to look foolish to someone. Just get that resolved in your mind now. Just deal with it now. I want to read 1 Samuel chapter 10, and this is the story of Saul being promoted to be the very first, actually he was supposed to be just the commander, God actually never called him the king, he called him a commander or ruler or leader, but the first king of Israel, you guys should know this story, I don't have time to read it all to you, you guys can go back and read it. But the gist of it is, is that Saul's dad, Kish, loses the donkeys, which is a great lesson. Just don't get donkeys, they're, unless they're really nice miniature donkeys like we have. But we have had some really stubborn burros. They're always going to do their own thing. So these donkeys get lost, and you know that Saul, uh, Kish sends his son Saul to go find the donkeys. It just so happened as Saul's out looking, the day before God speaks to Samuel, that he is gonna run into the first king or commander of Israel on that day as he's going up to sacrifice on the hill of God. And so Saul goes to Samuel, looking for insight and wisdom about where to find the donkeys. It's a total setup. The whole thing is divine appointment after divine appointment. It's it's. Really a supernatural So, Great, great story for you guys to read. And so First Samuel chapter 10, verse five, we read Samuel's instruction to Saul. And it says this, after that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you've come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. I would just like to point out an incredible fact here, how where the Philistine garrison was, that was where the prophets were prophesying on their instruments. We don't retreat from the enemy, we go headlong to where the enemy is. And if you wanna shift this nation where the Philistine garrison is, take prophetic worship to the high places. Verse six, then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you're gonna prophesy. This is Samuel telling this to Saul with them and be turned into another man. And let it be, and let it be. Everybody say, let it be. be. That when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. You do as the occasion demands. I never know what I'm gonna do, but I do as the occasion demands. You had prophets prophesying, you had a tense atmosphere of spiritual warfare, you had prophetic worship taking place, and in that moment when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be changed into another man and do as the occasion demands. Now we're going to jump to verse 9, First Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. So it was when he turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart, and those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formally, I want you to understand this, people are going to know you for the way that you once were and doubt you and question you, and this is what was happening to Saul. And what I'm gonna point out to you is the big difference between Saul, King Saul, and King David in their worship. And you need to see the deeper-rooted issues when persecution came, how one retreated and another stepped up to the plate and took it to the next level. And they came to the hill, there were the prophets. People knew him Said, saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this that came upon That has come upon the son of Kish. Is Saul, this is very condescending. Is Saul among the prophets, really? Then a man from there answered and said, but who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Is Saul among the prophets? And who's their father? because i want you to understand that the world will value you based on worldly things like your lineage, your heritage, the money that you came from, the how you were raised, your background. And when God raises up wild-eyed prophets, none of that matters. Verse 14, then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, "Where did you go?" So he said, "To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. So you can imagine the uncle's like, wait, you went to Samuel? The prophet? And Saul's uncle said, verse 15, please, you need to tell me what he said. This is gonna be awesome. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. So I want you to understand a couple things here. Saul was changed into another man, but he still had major soul damage. He had fear, rejection, inhibition, worry, and his first opportunity to testify of what God had done, he didn't tell the truth. He buried it and did not tell his uncle the truth. Why? Well, there was what I call a non-spiritual swamp. There was a fear of man and insecurity inside of his heart. There were questions about his lineage. There were people who knew him formally. There were rebels and many that despised him. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 27. At Samuel's coronation, when Samuel was being crowned as king, I want you to see this, Some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. And guess what Saul did? He held his peace. There will always be rebels. There will always be people that dishonor you. Even Jesus' own mother and brothers initially struggled with unbelief and despised who Jesus claimed to be. In the Apostle Paul's warning to the church at Ephesus, We're warned that even in the midst of your hometown church, even Rock City Church, savage wolves that don't spare the flock would rise up against us. Acts 20, 29, and 30, for I know this, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church of Ephesus, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. The issue isn't the rebels or the savage wolves. The issue isn't the warlocks and the witches that try to come in and distract. You can't stop the presence of God. You can't stop an atmosphere and a culture of love and worship. Bring them. Let the psychics come. Let the transgenders come. Let anybody that desperately needs Jesus come, and even if they come with ill will intent, we must love better because the presence of God is stronger. Those people need Jesus as much as we ever did. How dare we run them out the church and curse them. And... Now, if a savage wolf's in our midst and they're toxic and they're drawing people away and they don't receive correction and measurement and they become a cancer to the church, we must measure them and we must deal with them. But everybody deserves the same equal opportunity. And don't you believe that the presence of God can't change the worst of the worst? The issue's not the re- rebels or the savage wolves. It's the insecurity within our own hearts, both personally and in the church. The issue's when we hold our peace, when we shouldn't. Here's Saul at his coronation, and he, there was a division there. There were people that didn't like him, didn't support him. There's always gonna be somebody that doesn't like you and doesn't support you. always. There's always gonna be somebody that doesn't honor you. Get past it. And learn when to hold your peace and when not to. You know, when I think about holding your peace, I think about Proverbs 24, 10. Many of us in this church are holding our peace when it comes to these pornographic books in schools. We're holding our peace in the agendas against our children. We're holding our peace in the shift of the culture. And the only way we're gonna shift this nation back to the Lord is when you stop holding your peace. And you're afraid of persecution, I don't just need you to be a keyboard warrior. I need you to stand up and put your neck out on the line and take a bold stand to fight for this generation and fight for our kids. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. This word faint means I had to sit down because I was tired and I shut my mouth and I didn't stand up when I should have. And that's what Saul did. Saul was weak insecure, full of rejection. He was full of pride because he was more concerned about what other people thought than what God thought. Men that lack confidence and security in who they are positionally in Christ will always shrink back in boldness and become weak, heartless worshipers that care more about their dignity and their honor Instead of honoring God fully with their life. Where did this dignity thing come from? What are you preserving? What are we protecting? What are we worried about? No one has their neck on the line more than I do and my wife. Livestream all over the world. The way we worship, the way we dance, the way we sing, the way we shout, the way we love, the way we preach, the way we prophesy. It's not the popular thing, but the desperate, the broken, the outcast, it will be popular to them because it's authentic in what they need more than anything. We don't need tickling ear messages. We need fire. We need the power of God to transform lives. We need to stop getting offended with each other. You'll have every opportunity, every opportunity. Saul was that guy. He was the weak, heartless worshiper. Don't be that guy or girl. He lied to his uncle by withholding what happened to him. Look at 1 Samuel 10, 22. Imagine, you're being coronated. It's your crowning, and where are you? You're hiding. At Saul's coronation, he didn't even show up. He was hiding amongst the equipment because of fear and the rebels. And look at the scripture. There he is, hidden. Where's Saul? It's your big day, bro. It's your big moment. But you're gonna see in a minute, what did David do in his big moment? Now I'm not gonna take my clothes off. (coughs) He's like, everybody go, shh. He's like, I'll take it to the next level. You've got to see the difference because this is so applicable in the church today. And there were so many other things that Saul did. The fear of man kills the joy of the Lord. Let's say that together. The fear of man kills the joy of the Lord. It's only the joy of the Lord that always brings strength and authenticity in worship. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I worship because of the joy of the Lord. My strength's not in what I did or didn't do. My strength's not in how I feel or don't feel. My strength is in the joy of the Lord. But the fear of man kills the joy of the Lord. I'll prove it to you. Matthew 13, 20 through 22, the parable of the sower into the heart soils of men. Look at the scripture. He who received the seed on stony places is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful, Saul. Being changed in another man's a picture of being born again until the rebels came, until money pressure came, until the watchful eye came, until the people of your past came, until they said you're a fool came, until you're worried about what everybody else thinks came, until your image in the fear of man, and if you don't deal with that soul damage inside of you, you'll never be undignified. We must deal with the soul damage. We must understand the goodness of God and know that you're free in this house to worship. Now we worship together in unity. We worship together as a tribe. We worship together in the context of what the Holy Spirit's doing in the moment of this atmosphere but you are free where the spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. God has such a sense of humor. I came into worship today. First off, let me just explain something to you. I could never be a single parent. I haven't had my wife for two days. Three kids. I I am so done. Listen, single parents, I have more respect for you than I've ever had. I mean that. It is so hard. No, I'm really saying it's so hard. Let's give the single parents a hand clap. We have to cut root systems. Bad root, bad fruit. That's how you deal with soul damage. No root in yourself always leads to unfruitful outcomes in your future. You gotta get rooted. You gotta get the word of God rooted inside your heart. You have to stay the course. Saul had every opportunity to stay the course. And yet, the fear of man, Saul among the, who's his dad? And then even when Samuel prophesied over him, he's like, who, me, little old me? Like, I'm nothing, and my family's nothing, which was a lie, because his dad actually had wealth and power and a lot of honor and respect. If you study it out, Saul's dad, Kish, was actually a man of renowned respect. But for some odd reason, Saul was full of insecurity and fear and worry and doubt. So when he's transformed, he didn't stay the course, so he had no root in himself. So when persecution came, he gave up. What is it that robs the joy of our salvation and causes us to retreat and turn back? The fear of man, the voice of others, comparison, intimidation, inhibition, persecution, the cares of this world, they all rob us blind. And before we know it, we've lost that loving feeling. I've lost the joy of my salvation. I was on fire once. Some of y'all were on fire once until you got hurt, until the last pastor did you wrong, until you started getting your eyes on all the broken, jacked up Western American religion and all the naysayers on TikTok and YouTube until so you had a broken, failed marriage, and then somebody came along and said, oh, you don't even need to be married. It's better to be single in your 20s than to be married. Congratulations on your divorce. That's the way of the world today. We all have to forgive. We all have to get past We all have to get healed. And we all have moments where we lose the, feel like we lose the joy of our salvation, which is why David said, restore to me the joy of my Salvation. Some of y'all need restored joy. You lost your joy. You got stiff, you got mature. You're like stiff, mature adults of God. That's not in the Bible. It's children of God and a child, unless you become like a child. Woo, make me a fool, God, I don't care. I don't care what anybody says. I'm gonna worship in dance, I don't care. It doesn't matter what anybody says about me. If you knew what I came out of and what God rescued me from, I'll never hold back, I'll never hold back. And let it be known for all the world to see. We become dignified. We live a dignified Christian life in our worship. It's The desire to maintain our dignity that always robs us of the greater need to be undignified. Which is always rooted in false perceptions based on appearances. What we think of ourselves and what we believe others think about us. This is why we create carts and try to steady it with our hand. I will control the cart and the presence of God and if it stumbles, I'll control it. That's dignity at its finest. You need to see this. The presence of God shows up and all of a sudden God says, I, This isn't going to work. We're not going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. And we say, but I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to control and steady the ark. You want to not cry for seven years? Just say, I'm not going to cry. Real men do cry. Maintaining your spiritual dignity is always rooted in control. You know what dignity is, right? Dignity is to be composed in a serious manner that insists or seeks to gain others' respect and honor. It's a sense of self-pride and self-respect. It's self-exaltation of your position, which is always rooted in pride. Now understand, dignity when it's given by others is true honor and respect that is earned, not deserved. You don't deserve dignity, you earn it from others. But when we demand dignity through self-exaltation and trying to protect ourselves, we fall into the the deceitful trap of pride which is what the devil fell in. That's what so many pastors, you're gonna honor me, give me the best seat at the table. Look at me, I'm the pastor. Instead of serving and taking the low road, we demand that you respect me and that you honor me and that you give me dignity. And that's not the way it works in the kingdom. The last will be first. Just put, you wanna be first, put yourself last. I'll take the last seat in the line I don't care, I don't need bodyguards. If somebody comes at me, let me have Adam first. Unless they have a gun, Luis will take care of it. Here's what you need to understand, that the oxen will always stumble in systematic controlled worship. The oxen's always gonna stumble because it's worship made by man and our own predetermined ideas of how we will or won't worship, and in turn, we die. Look at this, 2 Samuel 6, 6 through 8. This is the first time the ark is coming into Jerusalem that David's trying to bring it to Jerusalem. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God, and he took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Can you imagine dying by the presence of God? <clears throat> and David became angry, too, because of the Lord's outbreak. And he actually named that place, the outbreak against Uzzah, so that you never forget, I'm going to name this place, the outbreak against the one that tried to control. The, instead of revival and outpouring, it was an outbreak against the one that tried to control the presence of God. You can't control the presence of God. You can't control the ark of God. You can't put it on carts with oxen to make it easier. The ark's meant to be carried on the shoulders of priests. The ark is always meant to be carried on the shoulders of his people, not on a cart with oxen, which most churches today are trying to do. You know, it's easy. Put the cart on, put the presence on a cart, and oh man, I know where they're going, I know what they're doing, I know what, it, it doesn't cost me anything. I don't have to carry anything. It always costs us something. We always have to carry the weight of the presence of God. And it's heavy. We have to kill the atmospheric tension in God's house in our worship. And we do this when we worship freely, authentically, and uninhibited by the fear of man or a man-pleasing spirit. In 2 Samuel, we read the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for the first time. David was crowned king of Israel in Hebron, then took the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. In his first attempt, which we read, and David bringing up the ark, everything was in place. You need to see this. Everything was in place. The musicians' instruments were tuned, the singers and the dancers were in place, and the processional march was in place. I need you to imagine this scenario for a moment. Hey guys, we're having a revival service, hypothetically, tonight or next week. And we're going to worship our faces off and dance. I got all the best musicians and singers coming in. I got everything aligned. Live streams queued, cameras ready. We're going to show the world real revival. Everybody's going to be watching. And we're going to worship our faces off to no end. And when we come in here, all of a sudden, somebody dies of a heart attack. I've been in a service where somebody died. Fortunately, he was sitting in the last row. Seriously, that doesn't mean y'all are gonna die back there. (laughs) I'm just making a point. I have genuinely been in a service, but it wasn't an outpouring service. But you need to understand that David, can you imagine? David was angry. He was angry at God. Because one of his main people who tried to steady the ark so it wouldn't fall over died. Can you imagine what you would have to face publicly in that scenario? That's what David faced. But just 90 days later, David got over it. David knew, knew how to deal with his issues with God. He didn't stay angry, he didn't stay mad at the last pastor, he didn't stay mad at the church. Some of y'all are mad at pastors and at the church. You're covered up, you're hiding, you're afraid, you're angry, you're living isolated. You gotta deal with this. You trusted God and you got hurt. You were at a church and the pastor had an affair. You were in the youth group and the past, youth pastor had an affair. My wife's story. But to prove the point, look at the second time. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David, how? Nine days later. I'm over my anger. And some of y'all are still bitter. You need to deal with the soul damage, or you will never experience the wondrous freedom of what God has for you in your life, and especially in worship. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed the oxen and the fatted sheep. Then David danced for the Lord with all his might and he was wearing a linen off, ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord. How? With shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. How many of you know what a pace is? A pace is a little less than a yard. A yard is three feet. A pace is two and a half feet. Notice the difference this time. David got the memo. I I need you to see this. This ark weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds. When it traveled through the desert, the priest that would carry it on the poles could only go so many feet before they would have to set it down and then switch out other Levites to carry the ark. When the ark this time had gone 15 feet, it wasn't in Jerusalem yet. Are we dancing and praising and worshiping because of what God's doing now or what God's about to do? Six paces, David busted a move. First thing he did, listen, before he busted a move, you know what the first thing he did? Sacrifice. Six paces. We're not waiting for a good feel good. We're not waiting for the right moment. We're not waiting for goosebumps. Six paces, sacrifice. Six paces, sacrifice. Sacrifice. You have got to see and understand. This is not about hyped up emotion. Yes, worship can build. Yes, it goes somewhere. Yes, God takes us somewhere. But we worship six paces sacrifice. Six paces sacrifice. Six paces. And get the band. Woo! And then all of a sudden, David uncovers himself. Or maybe it was uncovered before, we don't know. What does the linen ephod represent? The linen ephod represents who you were in private before you were in public. The linen ephod represents who I know I am. It doesn't matter what anybody else says because this was a priestly ceremonial garment of intimacy. So when you come into the house of God, you come already with your linen ephod on. You come already in your intimacy. Now they'll always be broken, Hurting people in addiction and broken marriages and broken homes and in hardships and places and sickness. Those people are gonna come in and they won't have a linen ephod on. But your linen ephod and your intimacy will affect them and snap them out of their hurt and pain and bring comfort to their life when they step into an atmosphere where the presence of God is. For the king to disrobe himself and to be in the linen ephod, that wasn't normal. David was breaking protocol David wasn't doing what everybody else thought that they should do, especially his own wife, especially his own wife. We hide nothing back. All things are laid open naked and bare before the Lord. So why would we cover ourselves and hide ourselves in the presence of God? Doesn't matter whether it's what God's doing now or tomorrow. What matters is what God wants you to do moment by moment. The story continues with David's first test of persecution at this moment from his wife. Second Samuel six sixteen. Now the ark of the Lord came into the city of David and Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David, what was he doing? Leaping and whirling before the Lord. And what did she do? She despised him in her heart. When David came to bless his household after blessing the nation and putting the ark in the tabernacle of David in Jerusalem, Second Samuel 6.20, then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of the servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly, everybody say shamelessly, shamelessly. Uncover, uncovering himself, shamelessly. And this was David's response. David said to me, "Call it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel, and because of that, everybody say, therefore, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase this. I'm gonna use my voice box. I'm gonna use my, you may not play an instrument. Y'all can learn an instrument, but you have an instrument in your throat, your hands, your body is an instrument. Your worship is an instrument. So he says, hey, because of God choosing me and because of who I know I am, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna play music. I'm gonna worship. And I'll be even more indignified than this and I'll be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants whom you have spoken, by them I'll be held in honor. David knew who he was and that God had chosen and appointed him. You must be confident in who you are as a son and a daughter. God doesn't want religious performance. He doesn't want you to be a nice Christian. He wants you to be true to who you're called to be, your sons and daughters of the living God. You've been forgiven. He who's been forgiven much loves much. You can be free in the presence and in the atmosphere of God without inhibition of what other people think and say about you. David would become even more undignified. You know the actual word used in the, in the King James is vile. I'll be even more vile than this. You know what that word vile means? It's not really a great, exciting word, but it literally means I will abate myself and I'll disesteem. Everybody say disesteem. I will disesteem myself in humility. Because notice he said, and in the eye, I will humble myself in the eyes of the Lord true loss of dignity only comes with true humility you'll never be undignified without humility he's like i'll be even more despised i'll become base in my own sight what does base in your own sight mean it means humility this is second samuel chapter 6 verse 22 humble or base in your own sight what is humility it's to think less of yourself than you ought to. What's pride? Is to think more than yourself than you ought to. It's to think you're something when you're not. Humility is to make yourself low. I don't find value in what I do. I find value in who I am. Not as a pastor. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a, I have a shepherd's heart to love God's people. I'm not valued based on a title. You're valued based on who you are. You can't be undignified without humility. And where humility lies, we find honor amongst the least likeliest of people, the maidservants. Woo, do I love that. Because wouldn't y'all like to find honor amongst kings and queens and princes and those that are a position of prominence. But see, God loves the outcasts and the meek and the poor. So when you become undignified with humility, God gives you honor amongst the most least likely. woo. I'm gonna conclude with this. Notice the difference between David and Saul in their response to the eyes of others. One retreated and in fear with low esteem when they were despised and rejected. The other danced boldly and publicly with low self-esteem and absence of any fear. Both had low self-esteem, but properly. I don't, th- I don't have low self-esteem in the sense that I'm a son. I know who I am, I'm secure in the word, I'm confident as a pastor, I'm confident as a husband, I'm confident as a dad, but I esteem myself less in the context of humility in the eyes of God, right? There's a difference, it's the difference between pride and humility. I don't have low self-esteem, but rather, I esteem myself lowly. Do You guys see the difference, okay. How you see yourself. When David danced with all his might, leaping and whirling, he was despised by his wife, and he was disesteemed. Not only was he wildly dancing, but he also uncovered himself by wearing only the linen ephod, which infuriated his wife even more. David would lose his image that day. Not the accurate image of who he really was, but the inaccurate image of what other people thought about him. Saul was intimidated and retreated. David took it to the next level by crucifying his image publicly. To Michal, David was just a base fellow with no shame. You know what a base fellow is? It's a worthless worthless person. Some of you see the outcasts and the homeless and the addicts and the gang members as worthless people. Don't ever see yourself that way. Jesus meets them right where they're at. Don't look down upon anybody. Love everybody equally. Or you'll fall into the same trap as Micah, where you see people as just base fellows. You're just a base fellow. I like you, I don't like you. I wanna rub shoulders with you, but I don't wanna rub shoulders with you. And that's what his wife was. You're just a little lowly, worthless, and your worship is worthless. Somebody will always think that your worship's worthless. David was a shameless worshiper. When will you choose to lose your image. When will you disesteem yourself before God and man? When will you decide to truly be shameless in your worship? When will you become even more undignified than this? When will you do as the occasion demands? David did as the occasion demanded, and even though Saul was changed into a different man and prophesied, he never dealt with the soul damage. When God is with us, we can always be changed into a different man. It's a picture of being born again Yet even when we're born again, we still have to deal with the soul damage. For me, I was so radically rescued. You guys know my story. I came out of Grateful Dead concerts, tripping acid, eating mushrooms, and twirling glow sticks with bright colored tie-dyes. And when I walked into a wild church with congas and percussion and people had flags and banners and tamers, I'm like, this is awesome. Where's the drugs and the alcohol? Because I couldn't imagine people freely worshiping without being intoxicated. And then it hit me, why did I have to be intoxicated to worship like that? You know, I think about how many people I've ministered to, especially in the outlaw biker world, they would never talk to me at a rally until I went into the bar and they had three or four drinks and then all of a sudden, loose-lipped and ready to talk. And I just wanna challenge all of you today. Let's not be Saul's. Deal with the rejection. We've all had to deal with, Jesus Jesus was rejected right? He was despised. He was esteem stricken by God. All of us have to get past our own insecurities. I'm not telling you that you have to dance. I don't, I don't care what you do. Do as the occasion demands. I realize some of you are like, I'm just never going to dance. Why are you saying that? And then people get mad at me because they feel like I'm putting pressure on them. I don't care if you do. I'm not looking at you. Just worship. Be free. Be undignified. Don't be don't maintain your dignity and your honor and your respect and your God's the one that gives it to you. When you make yourself of no reputation, God gives you a reputation. Let's all stand.